Welcome to this podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Making It Work, the in-house outside litigation council dynamic with PepsiCo. Christina Lewicki, a member of the City Bar's litigation committee, speaks with Farzan Feruznia, senior vice president and general counsel of PepsiCo Latin America, and Drew Tulumelo, litigation partner at Weil, Gottschall, and Manges. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Christina Lewicki. Welcome to Making It Work, the in-house outside litigation council dynamic. I'm Christina Lewicki, a member of the New York City Bar Association's Litigation Committee. I'm the host of this podcast series, which brings together leading in-house and external litigation counsel to share with us some insights on the factors that make a winning team. In today's episode, I am joined by two attorneys representing PepsiCo, Farzan Feruznia and Andrew Drew Tulumelo. Farzan Feruznia has been practicing law for nearly 20 years. He is a 16-year PepsiCo veteran holding a variety of legal roles supporting PepsiCo's businesses and corporate global functions. Farzan currently serves as Senior Vice President and General Counsel for PepsiCo's $7 billion-plus Latin America sector, a position he assumed recently in April 2021. Prior to his current role, Farzan served as VP and Chief Litigation Counsel for the U.S. for over six years, beginning in 2015, managing a complex U.S. commercial litigation environment, including responsibility for all litigation across PepsiCo's foods and beverage businesses. In 2018, Farzan expanded his responsibility to also support PepsiCo's global R&D function, including oversight for food safety and regulatory affairs, as well as PepsiCo's global sustainability function. At PepsiCo and beyond, he is passionate about strengthening diversity in the legal profession and mentors aspiring professionals from high school to law school. Before joining PepsiCo, Farzan worked as a litigation associate at Kirkland and Ellis, He is a graduate of Cornell University and Harvard Law School. Andrew Drew Tulamello is co-head of Wild Gottschall and Manji's National Complex Commercial Litigation Practice. He is a first chair trial lawyer, U.S. Supreme Court advocate, and trusted board counselor to industry leaders such as PepsiCo and its affiliates, BNSF Railway, Visa, and the NFL Players Association. Drew is widely known as one of the top litigators in the U.S., with regular recognition in Chambers USA and other industry publications. His practice is broad in scope. He's briefed and argued appeals raising significant federal and constitutional questions before the U.S. Supreme Court, the federal courts of appeals, and several state Supreme Courts. Drew is a well-respected sports lawyer who has played a lead role in many of the highest profile legal sagas over the last 10 years across many different sports, ranging from the NFL lockout litigation to Deflategate to the U.S. Supreme Court's recent Alston opinion, which dismantled NCAA rules regarding athlete compensation and educational benefits. Drew also serves as lead counsel to major global corporations in a broad spectrum of complex litigation and government investigations, including high-stakes class action, securities, antitrust, and False Claims Act disputes. Drew previously served as a law clerk to the Honorable Pamela Ann Reimer of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. After that, he served in the office of the prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia where he assisted in the investigation and indictment of a Bosnian Serb general for the mass execution of more than 6,000 unarmed prisoners in Srebrenica 
Bosnia and Herzegovina in July 1995. Drew received his JD magna cum laude from Harvard Law School and graduated cum laude from Harvard College. Farzan and Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. I grew up in a town not too far away from PepsiCo's world headquarters, and as a child, I loved visiting PepsiCo's sculpture gardens. To our listeners who don't know about them, they're officially known as the Donald M. Kendall Sculpture Gardens. They're located on PepsiCo's corporate grounds and generally open to the public. The gardens have been one way PepsiCo has developed a relationship with local neighbors and beyond. In preparing for this podcast, I've learned that PepsiCo pursues many varied and important community service initiatives in the locations where it's geographically present. That's right. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, the sculpture gardens currently are not uh, available to the public due to the pandemic. Sadly, they're pretty much not available to the employees as well because the office is operating in limited capacity, although it has opened up since uh, the summertime. Uh, So that's one of the amenities that we all miss greatly. Uh, It was actually a source of pride for us to be able to share that with the community. Uh, I loved looking out the window and seeing schools of children on tours or even local visitors from the neighborhoods coming. And we had uh, enhanced it with technology and apps that describe the wonderful sculpture gardens and all those things. But you know, that, that's not where we stop. As you put local outreach within all of our communities is a very important priority for PepsiCo. Uh, we, we try to be part of every community in which we operate. Uh, and so we try to contribute in ways big and small, uh, whether it's through ph- philanthropy that's official or whether it's through just the employees touching base with local community members and trying to find different ways to give back uh, to people of all ages and communities um, of all sizes and, and makeups. And so, you know, having lived in, in Somers and in Purchase and now in Mexico City, I've had the pleasure of seeing how we operate in all those different communities. And even when I travel for business, one one example I can give you is I used to go to California a lot with Drew for litigation reasons. And if I could tack on a business visit on the back end of that, oftentimes, in addition to our business meetings, we would do something like a beach cleanup activity or go visit a, a MRF to to try to help understand how recycling operated and then take those learnings to help uh, our consumers or customers in school settings and university environments understand how they could better recycle and separate their materials. Uh, So those are just examples, but community living and community giving is a huge part of the company ethos. What's been the greatest challenge stewarding a global corporation in the food and beverage space? I'd like to get both of your perspectives on that. Yeah, you know, I think The best way I can think about it is the responsibility and the challenge is trying to to man the helm of of some of the world's most iconic brands. You know, we're dealing with over $20 billion brands, some brands that have been around for over a century. They have immense equity and meaning. They support the livelihood of several hundred thousand, couple of hundred thousand employees and their extended families. And so when you think about that, you know, you want to make sure you take great care of the company and its brands and, and that you're, you know, as a lawyer, my job is to try to minimize, mitigate, identify 
risk and help the company navigate through through murky waters. Uh, and so when I think about the responsibility for us, it's how do we make sure that the company is sustainable uh, and is here to be passed on throughout generations so that many more employees and many more consumers can benefit from the interaction with the company. So that's probably the, the most general overview I can give of the responsibility. Uh, more acutely, obviously, we're dealing with issues of, of import, some of which may be material impact to the company. And so we have to identify those risks, understand what the risk could mean to the operations of the company, come up with action plans to try to mitigate those risks, identify the stakeholders that have to be involved, both internal and external, as we try to navigate uh, and, and implement those solutions, and then ultimately hope that those solutions come to bear and, and prove a positive result. And all of those on a day-to-day -day basis or on an aggregate basis are huge responsibilities for us as we try to make sure the company uh, remains sustainable. About that word sustainable you just mentioned, I'd like to focus on its different definition, the one that connects it to a big concept of our time and ask you on a broader level, What's been your role as PepsiCo increasingly reorients its operations and strategies to address ESG performance goals? Yeah, of course. So, and it's an excellent question. Look, ESG has become a bigger part of every corporation's uh, culture and life. And I think probably, hopefully you've seen the recent announcements we've made on the sustainability front with our PEP positive program. Mm -hmm. Um, which is really an escalation and enhancement of a variety of programs that we, we've been focused on and rolled out since the early 2000s, enhanced them again in 2015, and now really ratcheted it up and, and gone full throttle with the latest version of this. So, you know, I think the role of ESG and, and our role in supporting it, it's, it's shifted from something that used to be probably viewed by most as a side project, you know, a nice to have to, to try to make sure that, that the company is focusing a little bit on, on making itself more sustainable uh, and more environmentally friendly as part of its operations. So something that's a, that's a must have. You know, it's no longer a side project for PepsiCo. It's, it's part of our business model. Every sector, and, you know, I've now had the benefit of working for both North America and Latin America, every sector embeds sustainability imperatives as part of its business planning. We have dedicated employees who are working hand-in-hand -hand with the operational leaders and the CEO to try to make sure that we all have a line of sight into what the uh, AOP or the, or the business priorities for the year are, how they're taking account of the sustainability initiatives, what roadmaps we need to build to get there. Um, and frankly, it's expected of the investor community and our consumer community. So for us to be responsive to our stakeholders, that's exactly where the company needs to go because our consumers are demanding it, our investors by and large are demanding it. It's, it's part of a long-term horizon outlook for any corporation that wants to be successful for anything beyond a quarterly basis. Um, and so, you know, for us, we've had to shift that mindset to understand, in addition to try to put together the business plans and articulating these goals, what are the legal guardrails that we now have to think about in connection with that, right? So it, it has to deal with transparency. It has to deal with setting the right expectations. It has to deal with understanding what the legal pitfalls and problems may be, things as silly as, 
you know, we'd like to have more recycled PET as a, as a component of our products or packaging in certain markets, but the market regulations don't permit those as, as food contact substances. And so then we have to work with our government affairs folks and industry uh, lobbying um, bodies to try to influence the regulators in certain markets to allow us to actually implement our pet as part of a packaging solution. Um, you know, and we have to think about what it looks like from a, from the reporting and governance perspective. You know, now in addition to our normal annual reports, we have sustainability reports that we issue. And certainly the, the guidelines are shifting such that we need to think about ESG factors even in our, in our normal financial quarterly and annual reports. So all those things are, are it's very dynamic, it's shifting constantly, but are a huge part of our day-to-day um, business mandates now. Do you think that the pandemic has strengthened the importance of ESG credentials? I do. I do. I, I do greatly for, for a couple of reasons. One of them is I think all of us have had 18 months plus of, of staying at home. Um, and we've it, there's been a lot more interaction with our products, frankly. Um, and there's a lot been a lot more reflection of just the impact that humanity has on the environment, you know, and the potential reverse impact that environments can have on humanity and our survival. And so I think that the intimacy of that relationship has been clarified and greatly enhanced. And so I think people are thinking about these things a lot more closely than they used to be. And they're understanding that in both directions, we can have an impact on the environment. And if we have a detrimental impact on the environment, that could be uh, unfortunately, detrimental to our long-term survival. And so I think all those issues have, have brought a whole host of things, whether they're health-related, but also whether just general sustainability and environmental health-related that um, that folks are thinking about. Or it's definitely, we hear feedback from our consumers, from our customers that is top of mind for them. And so I think the pandemic has even further cemented this as an issue that must be tackled in both a near and long-term horizon. Drew, have you collaborated on PepsiCo Sustainability's initiatives? I have. I've really had the privilege of working with them on sustainability issues going back a number of years. And one distinguishing feature of the way PepsiCo treats sustainability is that it's essentially core, you know, a core focus and a core mission. And it's been integrated with business planning for as long as I can remember. And in terms of goal setting and tracking and reporting, the sustainability team at PepsiCo is as rigorous on on the ESG side as it is on the business operation side. And seeing that level of commitment and the the amount of resources devoted to sustainability initiatives and goals and holding themselves accountable has been great. And as an outside counselor, you know, the dynamic that I, you know, I have been focused on is, is, you know, how do companies avoid legal pitfalls when they are reporting on their sustainability aspirations and progress um, without, you know, over promising or without creating trouble for themselves as they report on their progress um, toward those goals. And, you know, Pepsi's done a terrific job in meeting its goals and uh, in transparently reporting. 
um, in large part, I think, due to the, the resources and the rigor that they put uh, behind it. I think other companies, um, you know, people are all over uh, you know, the map, I think, in terms of integrating uh, ESG systems and reporting and goal setting and tracking into you know, business operations. By and large, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but if you, you know, go back in time a decade or so, sustainability initiatives writ large were you know, often, you know, often a corner with a different group that put out a glossy brochure that wasn't really connected very much to the business. Um, that just can't be the case today um, on all aspects of ESG. I mean, as Parson said, the investor community, uh, the institutional investor community is very, very focused on this. Consumers are very focused on it. And if you don't have an integrated strategy internally and externally, you know, I think you've got a real problem in today's, in today's legal environment. You know, we take great pride in, in terms of making sure that we have transparent and accurate reporting on all fronts, you know, beyond just businesses and, and financial reporting. And so we've stood up a whole team that thinks through every metric for our ESG, um, you know, the variety of ESG metrics that we're reporting. We think through, you know, how do, how do we quantify it? How do we measure it? Uh, how do we explain it to the consumer and customer and stakeholders in a transparent way? Uh, and then we make sure we track it and we update our reporting on a regular basis so that people understand the progress that's being made versus the goals that have been articulated. And, and it's important for us not to just articulate a goal and then forget about it because we feel good about the goal. We actually action plan and try to make sure that we're achieving those goals. And when there's shortfalls, we explain where the shortfalls lay and, and what our plans are to try to make up the gap, right? And so that, that's, that's a huge component of, of what's changed, I think, in the last three to five years in ESG reporting. I think a, a, when you look back in 10, 15, 20 years, there might be an articulation of a goal that was very aspirational and then people didn't really think about it until the goal was was supposed to be due. And then they would ask, okay, how did you do? Right? Now, now we're doing it on a on a much more regular basis in advance of the actual due date or the target date for the goal and making holding ourselves accountable in that regard. And I think that's been a huge improvement. And when just to jump in and what one place that's one place where PepsiCo is especially impressive. There, there's you know there's a lot of discretion that uh, you have when you are identifying a methodology for tracking progress towards a sustainability goal. And some methodologies can, you know, produce outcomes that make you look better than others. PepsiCo has been really good about ensuring that it uses very reliable methodologies that hold itself genuinely accountable for uh, how it's doing, um, you know, rather than taking, uh, you know, a somewhat easier path or a looser methodology that might give it more credit. And, you know, that's one of the areas where, you know, they, 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 they kind of really are living up to, um, you know, their performance with purpose standard. It's, it's, it's not just the rigor and the analytics, but it's choosing methodology, methodologies for this tracking and reporting that are re responsible and reliable. Drew, what is the greatest challenge of practicing in the food and beverage industry from your outside counsel's perspective? 
as an outside advisor to PepsiCo, I, I think one of the, the biggest challenges has been really the shift in uh, the legal landscape and the liability landscape for companies in the food and beverage space. Before the downturn in 2008, it was not a space that saw a lot of litigation activity. And then after the Great Recession, a lot of plaintiff's firms started uh, moving in to the, the food and beverage space through labeling and other types of class actions. And so from about 2010, you know, the last 10 years, I'd say there's been an explosive growth of litigation in this space. And that just wasn't the case uh, 15 years, 20 years ago. So that is really different. I would imagine that change has brought the two of you together more frequently, which brings me to my next question. What tips do you have for a litigator building a lasting partnership with a corporate client? Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful question. The number one tip is learn the business. I think uh, that's an imperative, obviously, for in-house counsel. But if you want to have a lasting relationship as an external counselor to the business, you have to understand the business, what makes the business tick, what the levers are for the P&L statement and, and how to talk in a way that's going to resonate, not just with, with the attorney, the in-house counsel that's on the other side, but also with the business clients that you're inevitably going to have to deal with at some point in time when you're dealing in the context of a litigation. So number one tip for me would be learning the business. Number two, second tip is probably to understand that even in the context of litigation, it goes beyond just the legal merits of, of a particular issue. And you need to have some level of business practicality in, in the advice you're giving to the business. You need to understand what the business goals are. You need to understand things that go beyond, again, the legal uh, merits of a claim to uh, issues of brand equity and communications and the, the narrative that the company needs to tell about its brand and how that's going to resonate with the consumer. And I'm sure we'll get to it. You know, Drew and the team that we work with all the time is excellent at this, which is why we have a long-term relationship and having worked with them for so many years on the variety of these food labeling issues. But these food labeling cases at their core, they're an allegation that you're deceiving the consumer. Right. And so for us to be able to deal with that, it goes beyond just can we win this case on a motion to dismiss? We need to understand that whether it's Law 360 and the legal periodicals or whether it makes its way into, you know, a more um, mainstream journal. These are issues that, that might find their way to the consumer. And, and ultimately, you know, we are consumer obsessed. We're not in the business of trying to deceive our consumers. And so we have to think sometimes beyond just the motion to dismiss and understand what does this case mean to the consumer at large? How are they going to understand and process this? What does this mean for a brand? And as we're thinking and formulating our legal advice and our legal strategy with Drew and team, we need to think through all of those lenses, you know, because ultimately that's what's going to make the brand sustainable beyond just winning the case on the merits. Drew, what are your tips? My, I mean, my tips, uh, let me start first with, the, with, with an observation that I think a, a lot of it requires almost a kind of a philosophical alignment um, of values. One of the things I really have enjoyed about my uh, 
association with PepsiCo and, you know, I'm so proud to, you know, represent them is that, you know, I've, all, I've always thought that the, the lawyers and the business people I've interacted with had the right values in mind. And so, you know, Farzan often used this phrase, fair criticism, right? That, that if um, a nonprofit advocacy group or uh, plaintiff's lawyers uh, brought a, you know, a, a threat letter or a complaint alleging, you know, deception or non-compliance with a particular regulation, we'd look at it and, and, and if, if there was a fair point to be made, you know, the company was, you know, willing to engage on the merits of what might be a more appropriate way to, you know, adjust the packaging, the label, what have you. Um, that's really refreshing. If there's not a lot of, um, you know, reflexive, just reaction we've been sued and must oppose. So it gets a thoughtful look. That's, you know, that's, so that's one thing that I've really r responded to well. And then, and then, and then conversely, when, you know, somebody can't be dissuaded from, from just pursuing a theory that doesn't have any merit, the company has been very, very willing to uh, fight um, when it's you know not in the wrong, and it's very clear that they followed all the rules, and there is no issue at all with consumer deception. And you know we've had some doozies, and and so I think that 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 judgment, that philosophical approach, really fits well with the way you know just in general I think of things and would handle you know handle things kind of in my own life and i think it's very fair so so there's philosophical alignment that's one and then um yeah as an outside lawyer i think the you know you've just got to do your absolute best work um you know every time and not take it for granted and and you know i use pepsi i think about it a lot as a good example whenever i'm working on something um if i'm flagging a little bit or another team member is flagging I just, you know, I remind them there are, you know, 50,000 lawyers in this country who would, you know, kill to be doing what you're doing right now, right? Like people would be knocking down the door. People already are knocking down Farson's door, right? So it, you, you never take it for granted um, and do your best work. And then, and then, you know, I think the other thing is, is, um, a, another intangible is just, you know, have, have fun and be yourself, right? Like there's, there's a short window of time we have to be professionals. Um, it's, you know, everything is, uh, stress filled as it is. Um, and if you can make, you know, personal connections and enjoy each other's company as you go and do the work, it's, it, it's all the better. Um, and, you know, it's mutually beneficial because just ha relating to one another as people and friends, um, it just opens up, it just opens up deeper levels of trust and communication that in the long run actually help the client quite a bit. Farzan, can you tell us about a litigation success you share with Drew? Sure. Uh, you know, there, there's many. And if, if I may, can I just add one thing? And this will lead into the shared success. Sure. The, the idea of, of trust is a, is a huge component of coming back to what are tips for external counsel. You know, what, what Drew articulated in terms of the process, 
for us, that initial every every case, as he put it, or every demand letter, every allegation, gets a real fresh look, right? And and we look at it and we say, what are they alleging? What do we know about the brand? What do we know about the label? And is this fair criticism? And so that's how we first start looking at it, because ultimately, as we came, as we look back at one of the first things I said about the awesome responsibility, it's all about the brand and the consumer. You know, that's that's PepsiCo. It's iconic brands and beloved consumers. And so we're looking at the brand, we're looking at the consumer and we're looking at the allegation and trying to understand, is there something here that we need to actually think about because it's fair criticism? And once we identify that, that helps formulate the first part of the strategy. And then ultimately we're trying to understand, okay, what's the right end game or exit strategy for this particular allegation? Some of them will be, we feel we're exactly in the right and we're not doing anything wrong. Um, and we're going to fight. Some of them will be that we think that there's fair criticism. And so we'll talk to the business and, and have a conversation about modifications. And some of them are kind of in this gray area where you're trying to understand, okay, or am I making a financial decision ultimately? Or am I just going to take a crack at a motion to dismiss in summary judgment and then see where it leads us? So, you know, there, there's so many different levers to this, but ultimately it always starts with that initial conversation and you need to have an honest exchange with, with your external counsel and you need to have the trust with your external counsel that they're not looking just to rack up billable hours, right? They're not looking at for, for just an excuse to, to take you to a summary judgment and have you spend whatever it's gonna to take to get there. And so having that initial exchange with someone like Drew, I'm always confident that he's going to give me the, you know, his honest take on, is this fair criticism? Is this a case I need to worry about? Is this a case we think we can win pretty easily on, on the papers? Or is, is there something else that we need to think about here? And then, and then that's where the conversation takes off. Now, in terms of successes, you know, we've had all of those, and I consider every one of those a success because, it, again, it leads to what was the allegation? Was there fair criticism? And what was the outcome? So we've had cases that have lasted 10 years. One of them uh, deals with one of our beloved juice brands that started in 2011, I believe. And, we, you know, we felt that we were absolutely in the right. And we spent a lot of money defending ourselves. Um, and we won the case probably four times <laughs> based on appeals and, and you know, motions for reconsideration once they, they lost the appeal and all of that. But, you know, that was one of those cases where despite how much money was spent, the brand felt very important that, that you know, they were in the right and they wanted to fight the allegations and they're not willing to make any changes. And we won the case and Drew and team helped us do that. There have been cases where there's been sensational allegations and we've been, whether it leads to some on the sustainability front having to deal with uh, allegations of forced labor and cocoa supply chains or having to deal with uh, pesticides and things of that nature where we, again, we felt we were very much in the right and the case was poorly pled and, and that we should win on a motion to dismiss. And we had that early conversation with Drew and team, and they concurred with our viewpoint. We filed their motions to dismiss, and we won the case on, on dismissal, and then it was upheld on appeal. And so that's another example of, of a good case. And then there's been cases where we felt there was fair criticism and a non 
profit NGO type organization was a good example of that, where we had that conversation with Drew and we said, hey, look, it's important for us to deal with this criticism. This is an NGO where we, we value the relationship. And so we think we, you know, beyond just the merits of can we win on a motion to dismiss, we want to address the labels. We want to we want to work with them hand in hand and make sure that we both feel good moving forward. And uh, Drew and the team helped us facilitate that. And so, you know, as opposed to a formal mediation, we actually just sat across each other in a room with lawyers present and hashed out a deal over several meetings. Um, and it was very well received, both internally and externally. The NGO actually ended up issuing press releases praising PepsiCo's cooperation and collaboration with them. They felt that we'd greatly improve the label to the benefit of the consumer. And so I view all of those as examples of successes because they were the right outcomes given the situation of the case. Barzan, when you reach a decision with Drew, how do you determine which one of you communicates that decision to the business leaders, to the business client? Yeah, it's, you know, it's probably more art than science, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I obviously, I'm in touch with the business client all the time, right? And so I'm keeping them apprised of material up developments in the litigation. Certainly, if we're ever in a position where we have to think about negotiation authority and settlement dollars, those are conversations you're having with the business or modifications to the label, Um if you ever get to a position where you're going to have discovery and then there's going to be prep sessions for depositions, et cetera, you know, Drew and I are involved, but, but, you know, generally what I would say is most often I'm the person who's, who's speaking to the business directly, whether it's my voice or passing on messaging from Drew. But if, if we get to a point where I feel that it's, that it's critically important that, business clients, especially senior business clients, hear something directly from external counsel, you know, that's the art, you know, and depends on what it is that I want them to hear directly, whether it's negative news or, or positive news, probably more often in, in the art, it's in the negative sense, you know, then then we're going to, to Drew and I ask him to join me. And there's been occasions where we've had that. And I want to make sure that the message is amplified and echoed so that they understand the gravity of the situation. And so in those instances, you know, certainly I would impose on Drew to, to come help and, and have the conversation uh, with the business client. Drew, what do you particularly enjoy about representing PepsiCo? Uh, well, without going into particulars, I think I, I, I let me share some fun memories. I mean, one one of one of my one of my favorite things about uh, Pepsi is just how uh, strong all of the lawyers are. You know, not just Farzan and the, you know the, the 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 folks who run litigation, but you know the lawyers in the business units themselves, as as well as the people who run the business. I mean. It, 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 they are extremely impressive and you know in some ways they're they're like the best opponents and witnesses you could ever have because they're you know all extremely dedicated totally prepared willing to put in the work um completely principled come across well it's been great and you know in some of these cases working side by side with the lawyers from the business with their own clients that has been a sort like a real source of satisfaction and you know taking someone who you know initially doesn't want to be deposed doesn't have a lot of time um 
you know, making cut carving time out of their schedule, getting ready for, you know, whatever the testimony is going to be, that is I- I- extremely rewarding. We, we just went through, um, you know, a, a two week arbitration, uh, you know, with Pepsi and it was, you know, very similar. The, the, the lawyers for the business were very involved in all the prep sessions. And I think like all of us, it like internal and external felt just an enormous sense of pride when the business clients went up and took the stand and testified and handled cross. That was, you know, that was great. And, and so the, the sort of the teaming up um, to become one team, you know, in-house and outside, you know, as one team working on the, on the case, that dynamic is fabulous. And how do you make that dynamic happen? I think it's telling Farzan that you've repeatedly referred to Drew and team on this podcast. How do you create connections between in-house and external teams so that they work together seamlessly? Um, there has to be certain elements, and, and it starts with trust. Um, some of it is, frankly, repetition, right? Uh, and some of it is that we're, we're mutually invested in some of the same goals um, because we, we both want to have a long-term relationship. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one thing that, that I think has really been helpful for us in working with Drew and his team is that there's a key group of team members that are working on PepsiCo litigation. And so the, the ability to have not, not an exclusive, but a dedicated group of folks who I know are going to be representing us gives me confidence because coming back to one of the first things I said is understanding the business and building credibility with the client. I know that these are folks who are going to get to know the PepsiCo business and I'm going to be able to rely on. And by the way, the fact that there are sometimes junior associates who are very capable, it's great for me from a cost perspective. You know, it's, it's efficient service at, at a good price point. Uh, so, so part of this is the repetition and the relationship building of having a dedicated team of folks who are excellent lawyers and, and you know, check off various um, skill sets. You know, some might be amazing writers, some are better at articulating strategy, some are, uh, you know, better at, at getting prepared for depositions and uh, putting um, papers together, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that, that sort of give and take over time helps, helps um, strengthen the relationship. Now, on the mutual investment point, you know, one of the things that I would say is that and this is something that Drew has lived with us for a long time as a service provider to PepsiCo. Diversity in the legal pr- profession has been a huge imperative for PepsiCo, both internally and trying to drive it uh, through our service providers. And so we actually have a policy and we scored this on a, on a biannual basis where we actually ask our law firm providers or prospective law firm providers to give us all the metrics relating to diversity, both at, at the associate ranks and in the partnership ranks. Uh, and we have certain guardrails that they have to meet in terms of where they score based on our ranking system before we would even consider giving them business. And so, you know, th- that's one example where this is something that's been incredibly important for us. Uh, and I feel that the associates at the law firm side understand that this has been hopefully a source of opportunity for them because PepsiCo has been insistent that, that there's diversity within the law firms. Um, and, and that hopefully brings some additional enthusiasm and commitment to working on our matters. 
right? So I think all of those things in terms of give and take help cement a relationship that's long lasting and fruitful for both sides of the aisle. But ultimately, you know, it's a results-based business. So unless you have the trust and unless you have excellent work that leads to desired results for the company, you know, certainly you're going to you're going to look to different providers but that's that's never been an issue or, or the case for us because working with you and team it's been it's been an amazing sequence of events for 10 plus years where you know we've we've been able to meld strategy um results and and a mutual beneficial uh relationship that's that's driven hopefully um a successful career for a lot of the associates that he's he's been working with yeah, and I would I just want just to echo that point. I think Pepsi's uh, you know diversity and inclusion efforts have really made a you know fundamental difference in the lives of many of our team members. They you know it's on Pepsi cases that they got their first major role, PepsiCo cases when they made their first argument or did their first deposition or did a major presentation to the client and and. PepsiCo is 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 one client where you know you don't need to ask in in advance if you know the junior person can you know do the presentation or um, you know handle the specific issue. Like they, they they trust us as outside partners to you know to put people forward when they're ready. Um, but it's just been it's just been a, a career accelerator for basically, a, you know, a couple generations worth of law firm associates. Um, and by that, I mean, it's accelerated them into partnership. It's accelerated them into, um, you, know, ter- you know, terrific opportunities outside the law firm. Um, it's, you know, some of the people who started as, you know, associates on PepsiCo Matters, many, many of them are partners. And um, and that really is a testament to kind of Pepsi, you know, reaching into our teams and making sure we understand that uh, they want teams that reflect what the PepsiCo workforce like looks like and what the customer base looks like. And, you know, we, we have, you know, would never be perfect. No law firm is, you know, we're it wants to be but we wouldn't be where where we are without pepsico you know incentivizing us nudging us and being our partner in the process do you think that the responsibility really does fall on in-house counsel to incentivize law firms to staff cases with teams that are diverse equitable and inclusive i mean i've seen a lot of different approaches uh, i've seen a lot of different approaches some are you know, punitive, some are, you know, collaborative. Um, I think, I think the best, I think law firms are trying to go, at least we are trying to go um, in the right direction with, you know, our, all our heart and soul. Like we, we were fully committed. I think where, you know, what we respond to is, you know, when people understand that and kind of take that as a given, um, and not so much hold like, diversity over us as a um, you know something to be scared of if we don't sort of hit targets, but instead partner with us to help us 
grow and season young diverse lawyers and that's you know and that's the approach that pepsico takes so so i've never even felt that it was i mean i just felt it was part of the set of values that the firm and the client shared and that we were both trying to accomplish the exact same thing and 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 that sort of approach where it's more of a partnership on, on how to develop and retain talent as a as opposed to a stick um which you know it can come across that way from some clients like if you don't progress you know in this way by this date um you know th then there'll be consequences that's just a different way of approaching it um from from what pepsi does and 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 you know i and the you know the the sort of many teammates that i have mentioned who've you know now been promoted and are partners in their own right really have benefited from the partnership approach that that pepsi takes i mean that's a so 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 the answer is yes i think it makes a huge difference for clients to drive it um it makes a huge difference I also think the success or failure of those client efforts depends a lot upon the approach. And I think the way that Pepsi partners around those efforts has been enormously successful. Drew, earlier when we were discussing PepsiCo's ethos of community service, Farzan mentioned that the two of you participated in a beach cleanup community project together. Can you tell us about another memorable shared out of office activity? You know, as I look back, the you know the the fond memories I have are are you know the dinners after a long day of interviews with the clients. Um, you know the conversation, you know, going uh, out to you know out to a meal um, with a first year associate and having Farzan talk to them, engage them, you know, sort of blow their mind that, that, you know, they're able to sit across, you know, the table three months into the job from the head of litigation at PepsiCo, who really wants to know what they think and what they recommend. And like, it's so empowering to, you know, to lawyers who start that way. So all my, like all my good memories, like the victories are great. And I'm very, very proud of all of them. Uh, and the work quality has, you know, I'm very proud of that too. The things I remember are are are, are the off-field activities, so the get-togethers, the informal moments, the dinners, the you know the laughter, the you know, the seeing seeing the senior PepsiCo lawyers embrace the junior lawyers at our firm and try to raise them up. That has been the most rewarding thing for me. Farzan, why is it that you do this wonderful thing and take the time to meet with a first-year associate for dinner with Drew? Well, several, several reasons. One, I would tell you, you know, I, I've now been with PepsiCo for 16 and a half years almost. Um, and it's part of our culture. It's ingrained in our culture. We actually have these PepsiCo way behaviors that if you, if we ever if purchase that opens back up to the public, hopefully sometime soon, you'll get to see them on flags uh, across the buildings, you know, and, and three of them are voice your opinions fear, fearlessly act as owners and, and um, embrace diversity and inclusion, right? So to Drew's point, that's, that's ingrained in us as, as an imperative for the business to move forward. It's expected of all the leadership as behavior. Uh, the company has long had a servant 
leadership philosophy. Um, and so when I look at it, you know, that, that is exactly how we need to, we need to interact with, with both internal folks within the business, whether it's internal legal talent or the business clients, uh, or, or how we deal with our external counsel. And when I'm in the room, when I was a, a junior lawyer at PepsiCo, you know, the, the general counsel or the business client CEO or CFO of, of the business or the brand, they expected me to have an opinion and they wanted to hear my opinion. And so that's just the culture that was ingrained in us. We, we think it's a much better way to do business. It's a much better way to learn. All, all opinions and all voices matter. The, the breadth and richness of that diversity informs the better decision. You know, and we firmly believe that, and I think our experience has proved that that's the case. And so that's part of it. Um, the other part of it is that you know, I'm a firm believer that you learn by doing, you know, and, and you learn by being empowered. Um, and so um, I, can't, I can't fathom a different way of, of doing that. You know, I think for us, uh, when I was, even when I was at Kirkland Ellis as a young associate, my first three years on the job, I was in the New York office, which was a smaller litigation shop compared to uh, Chicago and D.C. Um, my first three years there, I, I was able to participate in three trials and an international arbitration. I was able to um, take something like 45 depositions, defend 20 others, uh, go to mediations. And th those were hugely um, important experiences in, in my learning journey. And so I would never want to deprive someone else of doing that. So I think it just comes from the perspective of, you know, what is the culture and philosophy of the company that you work for and yourself as a, as a leadership style? And hopefully those two things are merged and, and harmonized. And at PepsiCo, it's been the good fortune that's always been the case. And so that's, that's why I, I interacted. As Drew said, this was an experience in Chicago where we were at a dinner and there was a first-year associate. And it was important to me to get to know her and make sure I, I got her opinion because all of those could be, you know, valuable points that we may have missed as we were thinking through our own interaction with the business client. And, you know, she may have taken away something different. And there's been plenty of cases where that's exactly been, been the case. I'm interested in learning more about the collaborative nature of your partnership. How do you problem solve together? Yeah, so... You know, maybe I'll start and then Drew can enhance the answer as always, which is a good, good, um, actually, reflection of the collaborative nature of our relationship. You know, it, it really starts with with us looking at a problem as we discuss, when it, whatever the case may be, whether it's a business problem that I need legal advice on or it's an allegation that, that's in connection with a, with a threatened litigation, we look at the issue, uh, we try to, I try to help Drew understand the business side of it first. You know, here's here's the threat we've received against this brand. Here's the story about this brand, what we're trying to articulate, why this may or may not be important, um, and give me your thoughts on it, right? Or it may be, hey, Drew, we're about to embark on this venture, or we want to articulate X, Y, and Z, uh, and this is how the business is thinking about doing it. Here's my thought. Um, what do you think? Right. And so that's that's how the collaboration starts. This is usually with me trying to give some context to the problem that we're trying to solve to Drew and then relying on his expertise to try to give me his honest assessment. And we do that sort of interaction and exchange before we get into anything that's 
let's say, hardcore legalese, right? It's just the gut exchange of here's the context, here's the issue, here's the problem, what do you think? Uh, and we have that exchange first. And then we probably, before we, again, get into the into the setting up a matter and doing the, the legalese of it, we probably have a whiteboard session, which coming back to favored memories is probably, you know, one of one of my favorite exercises where we sit there and you know I'll, we'll throw out all kinds of crazy ideas well what about this or what if, what if we tried to do this in this case or what if we tried this let's say it's a defense or a strategy or what if what if the business tried to articulate it in in this alternative as opposed to the way they've articulated and and so we have that exchange and then once we've built out those parameters so that's, then, there's a lot of creativity involved in that there is and and i think there has to be you know, because I think you run you run the risk of it, complacency is always a risk, and it's a huge risk for the business, and I think it's a huge risk for a legal department as well. You know, we we have to learn and adjust and adapt because the business is incredibly fluid and growing and adjusting and adapting. Um, and you know, whether you want to think of them as opponents or critics or. or however you want to phrase that some members of the plaintiff's bar, they're constantly adjusting and adapting as well, you know, because for some of them, unfortunately, this is a business model. It's not, it's, they're not engaging in it, let's say, because a consumer is showing up on their doorstep feeling aggrieved. They're trying to come up with a way to make a living uh, off of suing big corporations. And so for them, they have to be creative and revisit and understand, you know, what new theories they could they could come up with that could survive a motion to dismiss or can can learn on previous decisions that are rendered by judges. And so we need to have that live dialogue and that creativity ongoing because because things change very frequently at a minimum every twelve to eighteen months. One thing that's really uh, one thing that's really helped me is that you know Farzin um, has often asked, you know, we often talk just in general about non-litigation matters and, you know, judgments kind of he's making in and around the business, things that might ultimately someday get to litigation, but that you know, aren't um, involved, you know, related to any suit that's pending. And it's really you know, having those kinds of conversations has helped me you know, learn how to think like an in-house lawyer at PepsiCo would think and, you know, has helped me become a counselor, right? Like it, 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 it sort of takes an investment from the client in the outside lawyer to as well, right? Like I've got to do my best to learn the business, but far as in taking the time to say, you know, here are a couple of decisions that are on my plate. Um, the business is thinking about going left or right. What do you think? Like being able to, do that a couple times a week is you know, absolutely indispensable to growing as a counselor. And really, there's nothing doing the litigation is great, and getting great results is you know, thrilling. Um, I don't think there's a more satisfying feeling though than 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 feeling like you are a valued counselor to a client as well. Um, and I think that's what PepsiCo is very good at developing in their outside lawyers. And so you're engaging in a lot of forward thinking as well. Yes. I think PepsiCo and the legal department, like leadership in all the business segments is very forward thinking. I would say we get pushed by Farzan to be um, really, really creative. I mean, like we have 
we have whiteboarded some some pretty exotic concepts and um you know and that just makes it fun it's not it's not a relationship that just trots out the old defense playbook and you know that's that it's dynamic it's changing it's you know, thinking about how to completely rewrite a script or reframe a problem and it's supported by the business because that's the way you know that's the way they think they are you know i mean there's uh, i refer to it as as you know there's there's regular ordinary time for most people and then there's there's pepsico time which is you know it's like incredibly fast so um you know that's part of the fun of 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 this uh lawyer client relationship as well Yeah, and I would I would just add to that for one sentence maybe, which is the idea for us, especially for effective in-house counsel, is you want to be upstream. You know, that's the phrase we use all the time. So in terms of forward thinking, we want to be in those conversations when they're initially happening. You never, it's never productive if legal is the end point, right? Where every, all the decisions have been made and then they're coming to you for advice, because that's when you unfortunately and you know this is not the case with PepsiCo but oftentimes you end up turning into this reputation of of the department of no right because all the thinking's happened there's been very little benefit of legal advice beforehand and then you have to try to you know reorient everything after a long deliberative process which just is not a fruitful exercise for anybody and so you know part of reason we try to do this more you know as i said upstream is because that's a much better exercise and it helps you understand the business what what goal they're after and then and then if you can play a part in helping them achieve that goal that also builds the relationship and builds trust Drew, how has the broad scope of your practice and particularly your work representing plaintiffs informed your role as outside counsel plaintiff's work is Great. It's a, I mean, it's a great way. Doing plaintiff's work is a great way to become a better defense lawyer. Uh, I mean, all all the, the truisms have been reflected in my experience. You can go on offense more. You're more affirmative. You're a bit looser, right? You're like you're just you're, you're on offense by definition. Um, so, you know, having been in that role in lots of cases in different sectors, antitrust, um, class actions, and so forth, it's, it, you know, in a sense, you get a feel for the range of strategic moves that um, really good plaintiff's lawyers can take. And so, you know, it, 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 when you're on the other side, you know, you are just able to map out and game plan a scenario plan for the strategies and tactics that you may see. Because, I, I mean, a lot of times I will say to you know, our teams, internal and external, look, if I were on the other side, like, this is what I would, this is exactly what I do, right? Like, this is the pressure point that I see. This is what I would go after. This is the issue I, you know, and then, and then you just turn that right around and you say, okay, how do we work that risk? Um, so uh, I would say it's, it's, you know, that has been enormously helpful. And also one of the things I try to straddle is trial practice with appellate. Uh, work and um, you know being able to handle appeals on you know difficult or complicated you know pure legal issues in a form where you know like federal courts of appeals or state supreme courts where 
um, the writing is different than it is in in, in you know in trial court. The the, the 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 issues are sort of developed more slowly through briefing. Like being having to be steeped in the law and in that process, I think also helps defend cases at the trial level. And so you kind of put those two experience bases together, and I think they really complement uh, each other. Farzan, you've been at PepsiCo for 16 years. How do you use your longevity at PepsiCo to support Drew in his role? Yeah, you know, I think um, that's a really good question. I think probably several fold, right? So the first part is, and, and I always start, I think almost every one of my answers in terms of knowing and understanding the business, right? And, and, Outside counsel, certainly any outside counsel who's dealt with us or, or deals routinely with, with in-house clients and the same client over and over again, they understand the importance of, of understanding the business imperatives and having some, some degree of trust and credibility with the business client beyond just the in-house client. And so the longevity I have there hopefully serves as a bridge for, for that purpose with outside counsel. Right. And so um, I've been able to effectively do that. I think whenever we've had some challenging discussions uh, where Drew has reached out to me and said, hey, I think this merits your attention. We need to sit down and coming back to an early answer I gave, you know, this is one where both in-house and outside counsel should sit down with the business client, explain the situation because we need to take some some action here. You know, the ability for me to to marshal the right people have them understand that this is an important business discussion that needs to be had. We need to dedicate a significant amount of time and resources to doing it um, and have them show up for that meeting ready to act and ready to listen. You know, those are things that come uh, with having built a relationship with the business client so that they trust you that when you're calling on them, it's, it's a necessity, right? So I think that's probably that's probably the, the most important point that the longevity brings to bear with with external counsel. That longevity also applies to your relationship with Drew. Can you give me an example of how the longstanding partnership with him has helped you in your job? I think you get to a point where we understand each other better, you know, because it's not just longevity internally. Once you once you're enrolled for three to five years, I'm used to dealing with Drew and team and we understand the way we talk. We understand when, you know, when we're serious about something or we, you know, there's no, there's no need to relive the whole introductory process all over again. And so when I talk to Drew and I say, Hey, this one's important. We need to get this done in X time frame because the business is about to do a launch or whatever the case is. Um, he gets it right. And he understands almost the same way I understand in a relationship dealing with my business clients or dealing with my friends, that there's different degrees of importance to different asks, you know, and while everything is important and you want to jump at everything, you know, sometimes when I say now, I mean now, you know, those are things that, or when the business say now, they mean now, or as Drew once put it, ASAP now, which is a phrase that I've never heard before. Um, You know, these these are things that only come with longevity of, of, having a relationship and, and build, building it together, which you don't get the benefit of if it's the first time you're, you're working together. Farson, do you think it's helpful to have certain personality traits to be successful in an in-house position? Or do you think that what it takes can be learned? Wow. Um, 
So I think the I'm going to answer that. I, I don't want to say it depends because that's that's the legal answer to everything. I, I I think there are certain personality traits that are more conducive to having a successful in-house career, but I don't think that I think there are personality traits that you can also um, learn over time through experience, right? But 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 what I would tell you is the number one point is. Uh, you have to have an unending curiosity and desire to learn because in-house work is, can be so complicated, can be so intricate and complex. Um, and, and you have to spend so much time going beyond just legal acumen to, again, there's a phrase, understanding the business, you know? And so one of, one of the personality traits you need to have is that, is that curiosity or desire to learn. Uh, second personality trait is you need to have some patience, you know, because I think when you're, when you're getting called on as external counsel, which is kind of what our most in-house counsel experience is before you become in-house counsel, you're getting called on at a different point in time at a different phase of whatever the issue or the problem is that you're trying to solve. And so there's some immediacy in there. Um, when you're in-house you know, things sometimes have to germinate or ferment, if you will. Um, and and so you need to have a little bit of patience to understand when the right time it is for you to insert yourself into an issue and try to make sure that the business understands the considerations that you're trying to bring to bear. Um, so that's a different skill set that, that you need to learn. And, and with that comes a little bit of humility, you know, and so I think... Um, it, beyond patience, the, the way I put it is you always need to be humble enough to understand what you don't know or who you need to seek advice from, but you also need to have a degree of confidence, you know, and so coming back to, again, personality traits, you know, in-house counsel is not for uh, very shy introverts by and large, you know, depending on what you're doing, maybe for some some areas it is, but by and large, you learn over time that in order to be an effective in-house counsel, you need to be able to, as we put in one of the PepsiCo way behaviors, uh, voice your opinions fearlessly, right? So you need to have some degree of confidence and some of that you, you gain through experience. So again, it's, it may not be a trait that you come into inherently, but over time, as you try to figure out how to be an effective in-house counsel, you understand that you need to have that confidence to, under, to speak up when you need to speak up and to make sure that people understand that you need to be heard on whatever the topic is that you're giving advice on. So those are probably, you know, patience, humility, confidence, and then curiosity and love of learning are probably this, the, the defining skill sets that I think would come along with the obvious things, you know, such as being excellent at what you're doing and having a legal acumen and, and all of that. But those, those four personality traits are probably the ones that would stick out to me the most. So now it's time for me to turn my role over to the two of you. Can you ask each other a question? Well, sure. I'd be happy to ask um, Farzan a question. So Farzan, you just took a role, um, you know, leaving North America and running litigation for PepsiCo in the United States. Now you are the general counsel of the Latin American business. How, what are the big differences and how's it going? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's a great question. So obviously, first of all, I'm just incredibly humbled and, and grateful for the opportunity and PepsiCo thinking that 
I would be suited for this position. Um, it, it's been an incredible transition. Uh, it's almost been six months now that I've been enrolled, although I just moved um, and, and set foot in Mexico City a, a few weeks ago. Uh, so there's the one thing that's been incredible about the PepsiCo career is I'm always learning, you know, and, and I have a conceptual idea of how huge and incredibly diverse uh, PepsiCo is in terms of geographical footprint and brands and business and business models, uh, et cetera. But, but you never actually get to understand it until you experience it live, right? And so I, I was fortunate enough to have been in, in New York all these years and got to understand the, the North America business a little bit. You know, and now I realized that we were just scratching the surface. And so now being in Latin America, there's, there's, you know, businesses that we don't even have, brands that we don't even have in North America that I'm now starting to learn. Uh, you know, we have a significant cookies and crackers business. We have a very significant cereal business. Um, you know, obviously uh, the, the staples in terms of uh, salty and potato chips and, and the beverage business are still there as well. Uh, and its geograph geographical footprint goes from Mexico all the way down to the tip of South America, you know, whether you're talking about Chile or Argentina or Brazil. Uh, and so it's an incredible learning opportunity for me. And so one of the things I realized is how little I know and how much I have to learn, which is exciting in a way, because that's, that's all you could ask for in a career is, is the ability to make an impact and learn and be invigorated at the same time. And so I'm finding a lot of that. I certainly miss litigation in North America and the team I worked with. You, Drew, you've gotten to know the people that I work with in-house at PepsiCo, both at the business side and in, in terms of the legal professionals. And they're just amazing, wonderful people. And so I miss working with them on a day-to-day -day basis greatly. But now I have a team of 90. And I used to have a team of 11 in terms of legal professionals that I dealt with uh, directly all the time. So I get the opportunity to get to know and, and learn from 90 amazing new people that I've never had to work with before. And so that's, that's amazing. And to work with the executive committee for Latin America and the business leaders from all the various countries. So it's just, it's, that part of it has been amazingly exciting for me. Uh, in terms of what's different and challenges, certainly the language for me is a barrier and I'm trying to get up to speed as quickly as I can to some level of business fluency in Spanish, which has been difficult. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll get there. I'm confident that we'll, we'll get there and everyone's incredibly kind and the company obviously operates a decent amount in English. So, so that part of it is different. Um, I'm going from a lot of things where uh, on the litigation side, I was, as you know, in it on a day-to-day -day basis, rolling up my sleeves, reviewing briefs, et cetera, et cetera, to doing a lot more delegation and people management uh, and trying to understand issues at a more strategic and higher level and help help remove barriers and, and make, you know, very important decisions or help the business make very important decisions. So that part of it is a little bit different in terms of a skill set that I need to learn, you know, certainly trying to manage a team of 90 and, and, and be in charge of guarding and stewarding and shepherding their careers is, is a responsibility that I do not take lightly. And it's, it's very exciting for me. 
Um, so there's a lot of things that are different and exciting. And at the same time, it makes you realize just how amazingly big, diverse, and impressive this company is and, and how many more opportunities I'll have to learn if I'm fortunate enough to continue my career here. Marzen, your question? So, you know, I think, Drew, you know, my question to you is, you know, obviously I'm not the only one who's had some some change in, in uh, careers and focus. Um, and we talked a lot about the relationship that you've built with PepsiCo, the amazing team that you've developed over time. And I'm just curious, as you're heading into this next chapter in your career, what are the key learnings and takeaways that you're, you've taken from your work with us and with other clients? What are you... What are the imperatives for you as you're trying to build a culture that reflects, you know, the things that are important to you? That's a that's a great, great, great question. Um, and I'm not sure I will be able to fully articulate uh, the answer it deserves. Uh, I mean, I, the, I, I switched firms, which is the, uh, you know, after, quite, you know, quite a long time, which which is. Um, you know, the kind of the premise of, of Farzan's question. And, you know, what I'm trying to do in this, you know, call it third quarter of my career is, you know, really to um, see how investing in an internal culture pays off um, from a kind of business and service provider perspective. I'm a huge believer in culture and teamwork and inclusion and, um, you know, getting the right people, good people aligned on a project, um, all of whom are willing to work together. And, you know, where the, there really is a sense of, you know, we're a team as opposed to, you know, anything else. And that is super exciting to me. Clients are responding because I think that's the way they function, right? I mean, that's how they want to operate internally. And, and so like we we're able at our new place to tell a story about who we want to be. And I think that really resonates with a lot of the, you know, at least some of the legal departments that we have been talking to. And, you know, in terms of lessons that I've learned from, from, you know, from Pep, PepsiCo, it's really, I think it goes back to the importance of, of trust, two-way trust. Um, you know, nothing has sort of made me feel more confident and more invested in making sure PepsiCo gets the best possible service and outcomes and advice from us than having them put their trust in me for counseling and for significant issues. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's what makes the profession and the practice rewarding. And so I really hold up my relationship with PepsiCo in my mind as, you know, as, as sort of the aspiration for what I'd like to develop with, with other clients. It's, uh, you know, hard to replicate. Um, no one's ever going to be like them. Uh, but it's it 
it is, you know, it is the ideal. And, and I take that with me. So, you know, that's the project that I'm embarking on. And it's drawing on a lot of, you know, new skills for me. It's also um, drawing on the new skills of a lot of the Pepsi team members who've grown up with me over the years, who are, you know, now in leadership positions themselves. And uh, it's a challenge and it's fun. Farzan and Drew, I wish the two of you all the best in your exciting new positions. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for making time for us. This, this was a treat for sure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eli Cohen and Alex Cardaris.